Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Aplastic anemia is a rare, life-threatening form of bone marrow failure that most frequently occurs in the first 30 years of life. Treatment modalities have evolved over the past two decades, and pharmacologic therapy has been refined to provide better outcomes for our patients. Given the complex drug interactions and unique toxicities associated with therapy, pharmacists and other healthcare providers play an important role in ensuring safe, and effective treatment for patients. Leading us through today's podcast is oncology pharmacist, Dr. Devin Stonerock, who will review the pharmacologic treatment options for aplastic anemia, including key studies that support and guide today's therapies. So really my main objectives of this presentation is for everyone to get a general understanding of the pathophysiology behind aplastic anemia and how it develops. Uh, to outline our different management techniques, depending on the individual patient that is presenting. And then there will be three pharmacologic uh, medications I'm going to talk about uh, in focusing on uh, trials, as well as toxicities, drug interactions, and administration considerations. So first, I'll start with off, off with a beef brief background, but want to get an understanding for where everybody is at. Um, this is not at poll everywhere question. It was meant to be originally, so I'll just kind of go through the question and answer, but to get everybody thinking. Approximately how many circulating blood cells are produced daily from a healthy bone marrow? The options were 50,000 ranging all the way up to 500 billion, and actually the correct answer here is 500 billion. So our bone marrow is the primary site of new blood cell production, and the really most of these hematopoietic stem cells, these billions of cells, arise from a common cell precursor known as hematopoietic stem cells. These hematopoietic stem cells are actually really limited in number. So we start off with 100 to 500,000 estimated within the bone marrow, and these ultimately are responsible for producing billions of cells each and every day. These cells, how they do that is they differentiate into progenitor cells or daughter cells that have uh, multipotency and can turn into these mature blood cells, including our red, white blood cells that are important to the immune system and sustaining life in general. Uh, how do they do this? You're probably asking yourselves, how do we start from 100,000 and end up with billions of cells? It's through a very intricate process of self-renewal and expansion of those stem cell replicas, uh, stem cells within the bone marrow. And it's actually an age-dependent process. So over time, we tend to have less stem cells within that bone marrow. And uh, the differentiation capacity goes into those amyloid or lymphoid daughter cells. And a subset gets replicated and maintains these stores within the marrow. So as we age, the cellularity, which is simply put, the percentage of cells occupying that marrow space actually decreases. Uh, so starting off in the young years, we have a high cellularity. And the general rule of thumb is taking 100 minus the patient's age. So if a patient's 50 years old, for example, I expect them to have 50% cellularity. Aplastic anemia itself is a bone marrow failure syndrome and directly affects those hematopoietic stem cells. Aplastic actually arises from the Greek word aplastos, meaning or roughly translating nowadays into failure to function. 
It was first described in 1888, and really the end result of this and end result of depletion of those hematopoietic stem cells is a pancytopenia as well as an empty or a hypocellular marrow. You're probably also wondering how do we end up having this happen, and there's really two broad categories of causes of aplastic anemia, and that is acquired aplastic anemia and inherited aplastic anemia. I'm going to be focusing really today on acquired, uh, which 70 to 80 percent of the cases are actually idiopathic, whereby we don't really know the true cause. But in most of these cases, we think that it's the T cells and actually an autoimmune process whereby our cytotoxic T cells come in and suppress or attack those hematopoietic stem cells, thereby depleting that compartment and resulting in that pancytopenia. Inherited disorders, I won't be focusing on today, but in these cases, the patients are starting off with, because of genetic mutations, a non-functional or decreased functioning stem cell or a low stem cell compartment within that marrow. And some of the reasons we think it might happen a lot of times are uh, post-viral infections, whereby viral infection increases proteins on the hematopoietic stem cell surface, and our body recognizes that as foreign, and an autoimmune process decreases them. Historically, drugs and radiation, we know with really high doses of chemo, we can actually totally wipe out the marrow. And the same thing with radiation. Uh, we don't see this as much nowadays, but back in the days with chemical warfare and before we knew what we were doing as well, it was a factor that played in. Uh, precise estimates are really unknown, but this is a very rare disease. So in modern developed countries where we do have data, estimates are two to four cases per million persons. It's primarily thought of as a disease of the young. So over 50% of cases are diagnosed in the 20 to 30 year old range. Uh, with another subset, subset, there's a biphasic distribution where you see at 55 to 60 years of age uh, in incidence too. So we do have elderly patients that we have to treat and that all factors into treatment decisions. Diagnostically, I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail here, but you do need a bone marrow biopsy for diagnosis. And it's really a diagnosis of exclusion. So with that bone marrow aspirate and biopsy, we're looking for uh, other malignant causes of the pancytopenia, uh, doing a lot of underlying genetic testing, which can tell us about whether it's inherited aplastic anemia versus not, and give us more cues onto whether this is truly a diagnostic of aplastic anemia. Uh, what that biopsy usually looks like is a hypocellular marrow, as we would expect, because we have less stem cells there. And then that empty marrow space is replaced by fat cells or by fat, which is distinctly different than fibroblasts or fibrotic tissue within the marrow, which points to an alternative diagnosis. Aplastic anemia presents with that pancytopenia, and I know the name is kind of confusing, anemia, but it's actually a pancytopenia. Uh, but all this clinical presentation is directly related to those underlying cytopenias. So thrombocytopenia, uh, most patients present and the most common symptoms on presentation are related to bleeding, easy bruising, bleeding, oftentimes a new onset bloody nose or in women, uh, heavy menstrual cycles. With anemia, oftentimes the most second common presentation, it's usually progressive fatigue as those cytopenias worsen over time. And when the disease gets severe, patients become really neutropenic, their neutrophil counts get low, and you start to see infections and fevers, and oftentimes this is the presentation. New onset pneumonias over a course of months, we come into the hospital, get a CBC, and reveals pancytopenia. On further workup, we end up with a diagnosis of aplastic anemia. Prognostically, it's actually really good in modern times if you have acquired aplastic anemia. Uh, the real two independent risk factors that I want everyone to take away from this are the age at presentation, the older the age, the more the worse the prognosis, and the severity of disease at presentation, and we'll get into that. 
this data here is a Swedish cohort in the first decade of the 2000s, whereby you can see that clear trend. Over 90% five-year overall survival in our patients under 40 years of age. And in our elderly patients, we can see that survival gets worse and worse as these patients age. So that brings us to our first poll everywhere question. Aplastic anemia is thought to be primarily an autoimmune condition resulting in self-mediated destruction of hematopoietic stem cells by which cell type? And on top of the slide here, you can either respond via the website at pollev.com or text Mayo or X to 22333 and then enter your choice. I'll wait just a minute for everybody to get familiar with that. Perfect. So it looks like most people are getting this spot on. So T cells are what we think of as the primary driver and the reason for aplastic anemia development in these acquired cases. Neutrophils and macrophages are actually usually low and part of our innate immune system, so don't play a big role in that autoimmune process. And some studies have shown B cells uh, involvement, but they don't appear to be the primary driver and antibody production is against those stem cells is usually low. So that brings us into treatment decisions. And really with treatment options, those risk factors for prognosis come back into play. So for patients with non-severe disease who are elderly or are less fit, like they have multiple, comorbid multiple comorbidities or poor functional status, these non-severe disease cases, we often tend to observe or provide supportive care over time. So we can watch the CBC over time and watch those cytopenias and then decide to do treatment at a future time. As patients uh, present with more severe disease, if they go without treatment, there's a very high mortality in the early periods. So our patients who are young with good functional status or presenting with severe disease, we come more to treatment with immunosuppressive-based therapy, which will be the focus of this presentation, and then allogeneic stem cell transplant in select patients. Disease severity has not really changed much over time. So this is the COMMITA criteria that is used uh, for disease severity classification in aplastic anemia. It was actually published in 1981, so it's been around for decades. Uh, for non-severe disease, this is where the diagnosis has been made, but peripheral cytopenias have not worsened to the point where they, they fulfill the criteria for severe or very severe disease. This represents, unfortunately, only about 20% of cases. So most patients will present with severe disease. However, if you can diagnose at the non-severe state, this is a patient we can watch over time and really guide treatment better rather than having to have urgent treatment. Severe and very severe aplastic anemia. Uh, with severe disease, bone marrow cellularity is now less than 25%. And at least two of the following are seen in peripheral blood an ANC less than 500, platelets less than 20,000, and a reticulocyte count less than 60,000. The distinguishing point for very severe disease is an ANC has now fallen below 200, and those patients are now at very high risk of infection. If we go without treatment, most of these patients will have mortality due to infection in the coming months. Each of these represents about 50% of presenting cases, so over 80% of patients do present with severe disease, and that's why it's so important to understand the treatment um, and get these patients the care that they need fast. So for severe and very severe disease, there's really two paths uh, that we can take, immunosuppressive-based therapy or allogeneic stem cell transplant. Uh, the way we decide between these two is first looking whether there's a matched sibling donor available, and then second, looking to the age of the patient. Most of our patients are young at presentation. If they do have a mesh-related donor available so we can take them straight to transplant, that's what will be done. Uh, however, there's these elderly subset of patients where transplant actually increases the morbidity and mortality, so we don't proceed to that right away. 
And then there's also plenty of patients that are transplant ineligible because they don't have that match-related donor available at the time. So we proceed to immunosuppressant-based therapy in those cases as well. So that brings us to our second assessment question. I'll have the poll everywhere on the next slide because this is a case-based. We have a 28-year-old male college student from Korea with no siblings presenting with pancytopenia. His hemoglobin is 5.8, white count of 0.8, and platelets of 10. He presents with symptoms of a nosebleed and a sore throat, and his ANC is 400 on presentation. So after malignancy is ruled out, he ends up with a diagnosis of aplastic anemia based on the bone marrow biopsy and aspirate. What is the best initial treatment approach for this patient? Here is the pull everywhere question. Uh, the options are observation, supportive cure alone, stem cell transplant, or immunosuppressant-based therapy. So as the answers roll in, it looks like the majority of people are getting this spot on. This is a patient that you want to take directly to treatment with immunosuppressive-based therapy. Uh, he's a young patient with no siblings present, so there's not going to be a match-related donor available. It's going to take months to work up a patient like this for transplant. So observation and supportive care monitoring really go out the window. The longer we wait to treat, the higher the morbidity and mortality is within this population. Stem cell transplant is definitely an option. Uh, however, in clinical practice, because we don't have that matched sibling donor available, there is a balance between benefit and risk of taking a patient to transplant, and this process will take months. So this is a patient for that reason you take directly and treat with immunosuppressant-based therapy. So now getting into treatment. I want to make sure everyone's familiar with, because I'm maybe referencing this in trials, uh, the response criteria for aplastic anemia, and it's fairly straightforward. So if there's no response, basically the patient has those severe cytopenias, both after, before, and after treatment. A partial response, patients now become transfusion independent, and they have cytopenias, but those cytopenias no longer meet the criteria for severe disease. And a complete response, which of course we're going for in 100% of these patients, is where Really, it looks like a healthy marrow. The hemoglobin has normalized for their age and gender. The ANC is over 1,500, and platelet count is over 150. There's three primary agents we're going to go through today, and I'll start in the timeline of which they were introduced in the clinical practice. And the first is antithymocyte globulin, or ATG. ATG is really interesting how it's created. Uh, we inject human T and B cells into another mammal, primarily horse and rabbit. That, of course, we're injecting a foreign body into another mammal, so it mounts an immune response, generates polyclonal antibodies against our TMB cells. We harvest those, purify them, and then can give them back to cause profound lymphodepletion and depletion of those TMB cells. In aplastic anemia, since we think the primary driver is an autoimmune process with those T cells, uh, giving ATG results in depletion and thereby Hypothetically, we alleviate the immune-mediated response and allow for restoration of that stem cell compartment. Uh, for those in the solid organ transplant world, uh, you're probably very familiar with the two ATG products we have. There's a rabbit product and a horse product. The rabbit product is distinctly different in that it causes more potent lymphodepletion. It increases regulatory T cells, uh, which in this setting, regulatory T cells are actually involved in suppressing or putting the brakes on that T cell response in autoimmune diseases. So in theory, it would have a benefit here. And then it also is associated with your infusion reactions compared to horse ATG. So hypothesis going in back in the 70s and 80s was that rabbit ATG would result in higher response rates compared to horse ATG. 
This was set up as a clinical trial where 120 patients were randomized in 2011. This was published to rabbit ATG or horse ATG. And this is in, in addition to that standard, uh, standard backbone, including cyclosporin, which I'll talk about next. And they hypothesized going in that rabbit ATG would do exactly that, result in higher responses because of these beneficial properties. Primary outcomes they looked at were hematologic response at six months. That was defined as a CR plus PR, so improved cytopenias and transfusion independence. And secondary outcomes included survival, relapse, and lymphocyte counts. So exactly as we would expect, when you look at the lymphocyte counts over time, rabbit ATG is much more potent. Lymphocyte counts remain depleted. You can see out to week two, we don't even see any recovery until two weeks later. And with horse ATG, you should cover recovery in the ALC after just a few days. And also going out to six months, you'll notice that rabbit ATG is still resulting in lymphodepletion out long-term, whereby with horse ATG after a couple of months, we have kind of back to that baseline levels with ALC. Um, despite the hypothesis going into the study, we can see in uh, blue here is the horse ATG and yellow is rabbit ATG. Response rates were about twice as high at three and six months with horse ATG, as well as a survival benefit uh, with regards to three-year overall survival in patients receiving horse ATG, ATG, and it's almost 20%, so a very large survival benefit and response benefit, which made horse ATG come to the front line and is the first-line therapy uh, for immunosuppressive-based regimens. Rabbit ATG, you will see sometimes in aplastic anemia, but really where it's used now is in the refractory setting where a patient doesn't respond uh, initially to horse ATG. Dosing-wise, there's a few things to uh, understand about horse ATG. Uh, first is a huge risk of infusion site reactions. Most of these are infusion reactions versus true anaphylaxis. And what we do here at Mayo Clinic is the package insert recommended intradermal test dose of five micrograms to see if a patient has a reaction before starting it. I will mention for completeness that some institutions and other guidelines recommend just taking the dose and doing the first 100 milliliters over an hour and then just monitoring the patient closely during that time period. It's dosed at 40 milligrams per kilogram per day as an IV infusion over a minimum of four hours for a four-day period. That is a very high dose if you look respective to our solid organ transplant populations, and that time period is able to extend. So if a patient is having uh, infusion-related reactions, we can extend that out to 18 or 24 hours to get the patient through that transfusion and make sure they're getting the therapy with supportive care, of course, in the background. Uh, the duration is four days, and this is important. It might be intuitive to think, well, maybe if the patient's not tolerant, we can extend it over a longer period of time. But actually, it has been studied in a 7 to 14-day course of this with that dose spread out over time results in an increased incidence of serum sickness, which I'll talk about on the next slide. Another important point is in virtually all patients, we try to get a central line. Um, and the reason for that is twofold. There's a risk of phlebitis it is a sclerosing agent. And secondarily, if the patient does have an infusion-related reaction, that gives us access right there to respond quickly uh, in the situation that we need to. There's three toxicities that I think of. Those infusion-related reactions, again, we do pre-medicate for this, usually with diphenhydramine, a corticosteroid, and acetaminophen, and do that test dose to try to parse out whether a patient's at risk or not beforehand. Uh, cytopenias, these are usually transient. So those polyclonal antibodies can actually bind to platelets, bind to red blood cells, resulting in an initial period of worsening thrombocytopenia or pancytopenias. However, these patients are, of course, starting off with cytopenias to begin with. We'll probably transfuse or give red blood cell transfusions to support through that. 
And then serum sickness is a late toxicity and an interesting one. It occurs at a median of seven to 10 days. It's actually a type three hypersensitivity reaction characterized by rash, joint pain, fevers, general fatigue, or malaise. And preventatively, in all patients receiving horse ATG, we give one to two mg per kg of prednisone over a five to 10 day period in the initial period, and then oftentimes taper that over in the next week to week or two to prevent serum sickness. In majority of patients, that strategy is effective. However, in the case that a patient experiences side effects and does have serum sickness at any point in time, we increase the dose of steroids and it's usually responsive to that. So next agent uh, to come into play was cyclosporin. Cyclosporin works directly on those T cells. In a calcium-mediated process, um, it, an enzyme or a phosphatase called calcineurin results in dephosphorylation of a transcription factor known as NFAT, or nuclear factor of activated T cells. That transcription factor then translocates to the nucleus and results in transcription of multiple cytokines, but a particularly important one is IL-2 or interleukin-2. That IL-2 I think of as like a green light and results in secretion, results in activation of other T cells within that bone marrow microenvironment, thereby uh, pushing forward that immunosuppression or autoimmune response even further. So by introducing cyclosporin, cyclosporin is an inhibitor of calcineurin. We take out that dephosphorylation we lose that transcription, thereby kind of put the brakes on that autoimmune T cell response and suppress those T cells from this, in most case of, cases of aplastic anemia, this autoimmune process. Cyclosporin really came into practice in the late 80s. In uh, the German aplastic anemia study is really the hallmark study that came out in 1991, where they took 84 patients and randomized to steroids plus a horse ATG or steroids plus ATG plus cyclosporin. Why did they do this study? Well, it turns out the standard of care at that time was taking, giving patients ATG and then taking them to transplant. And it was observed that not every patient that undergoes transplant and grafts after that transplant. And some patients were still responding. So recovering those cytopenias after, and really the only thing they were on was immunosuppression with cyclosporin. So this group did an initial pilot study that showed promise. And then this study, really the bottom line for, from it was that complete responses and response rates were much higher, 65% versus 39% at three months. And the 41 month overall, overall survival was almost double. So back in the 90s, cyclosporin is added as this gold standard backbone for immunosuppressant based therapy of horse ATG, not horse ATG quite yet at that time, and then cyclosporin. Cyclosporin comes in two formulations, a non-modified and a modified version. Um, just for completeness sake, I have that here, but in virtually all cases, we're going to introduce the modified version due to consistency and absorption and peaks and troughs or trough levels amongst patients. Uh, initially, we dose this in clinical trials. It's been dosed at five to six mg per kick per day, and we do that in divided doses. Important to know with respect to starting this is that there's a 25 to 50% dose reduction with azole antifungals. Um, these patients, remember, are starting with low neutrophil counts. So a lot of times in that upfront period, we are going to have empiric azoles on for antifungal prophylaxis. And the other important thing in practice is to remember that when we take off that azole as these patients recover, you're going to probably need to go back up on the cyclosporin dose. So it's just something that we're always going to be monitoring for and want to take into account. 
The target trough is 150 to 250. I'll say that with a caveat that it depends on what assay your laboratory uses, uh, what that goal trough range is going to be. That's what we use here at Mayo Clinic with a mass spec based assay. However, this might also be provider specific and it will depend on the time in therapy that you're at. Duration is unknown, and I'll tell you how it generally proceeds in clinical trials and in clinical practice, is usually at six to 12 months of cyclosporin at these higher, relatively higher goal trough ranges. And then we taper up to 24 months. If the patient's cytopenia start to worsen at that 24 month period, or even after that 24 month period, you can reintroduce cyclosporin. And a lot of times that is enough to reverse the relapse that's starting to happen. Major toxicities are nephrotoxicity, infection, and neurotoxicity. These are both peak and trough related, so monitoring is very important to prevent those. There are some patients that just cannot tolerate, um, and there are alternatives that you can use in that case. Minor toxicities, which often are not really minor because patients can be on this up to two years, are hypertension, electrolyte abnormalities, uh, some physical side effects like gingival hyperplasia, hypertrichosis, and hirsutism. And then hyperglycemia as well. So being careful in patients with underlying hypertension, uh, monitoring for blood pressure for new onset hypertension, uh, patients with diabetes or prediabetes, there's lots of monitoring involved when starting patients on cyclosporin. Lastly is our thrombopoietin receptor agonist. And this is newest to the scene and really the first new therapy we've had added to the gold standard backbone uh, of that ATG and cyclosporin in decades now. So I'm going to take a little bit more time to explain the mechanism here because it's less intuitive, uh, but our bodies produce what's known as endogenous thrombopoietin in the liver and kidney is the primary site of production of this protein or peptide. Endogenous thrombopoietin is secreted directly in response to uh, platelet counts a lot of times. So it's under a homeostatic regulation mechanism. And when we have low platelets, our body upregulates this molecule. The TPO or thrombopoietin receptor is actually located uh, majority on megakaryocytes, which produce our platelets. So by giving or producing this endogenous thrombopoietin, we stimulate uh, the thrombopoiesis and generation of those platelets. So endogenous thrombopoietin binds. It turns out that our stem cells and these progenitor cells actually express that TPO receptor as well. And by stimulating that, in theory, we activate that signaling cascade and results in differentiation and ultimately production of red blood cells, white blood cells, et cetera, and all these mature blood cells. Now, what happens in aplastic anemia, as you might imagine, our platelets drop low. And if you actually measure endogenous thrombopoietin levels in these patients, it's oftentimes elevated in response to those low platelets or it's unchanged. So it's at normal levels. And so this is kind of uh, counterintuitive, but with in vitro and in vivo studies, it's been shown that likely in that microenvironment of the bone marrow, where we have this autoimmune response, we have a bunch of T cells there that secrete cytokines. And one cytokine known as interferon gamma can actually come in and we think binds to endogenous thrombopoietin, thereby activating it, preventing it from binding to that TPO receptor. By preventing that binding to the TPO receptor, you kind of wipe out that signaling cascade. So you're kind of adding insult to injury, and those cells can't go through this differentiation process. Now, althrombopeg is unique in that it's a small molecule inhibitor. So it's not this large peptide like we have produced endogenously. So the idea with introducing althrombopeg is that it doesn't have that interaction with 
interferon gamma or these inflammatory cytokines. It binds to a different part on that receptor and thereby by giving this medication, we can stimulate that differentiation and restore normal hematopoiesis again. It was first studied in a phase two trial that was published in 2017. It took 92 patients randomized, uh, not randomized, but uh, 92 pa patients with severe disease with that gold standard now backbone of horse ATG in six months of cyclosporin, followed by a taper. Uh, the cohorts that were divided were day one or day 14 L-thrombopag and then three to six month duration of therapy. Primary outcome they looked at here was hematologic CR at six months with secondary outcomes very similar to prior, but just including adverse events to look at toxicities from the med. Regards to the primary outcome, the CR was achieved in 30% of patients at that six month period, where if you look at historical data and lots of observational data, usually what we expect is a CR rate of somewhere between 10 and 20%. CR in specifically cohort three, where thrombopeg was started on day one, was as high as 60%, almost 60% at the six month period. So this is really promising data uh, out of a phase two trial that was published in 2017. Overall response was 80% at three months and almost 90% at six months. Overall survival was almost 100% at the two-year point of cutoff in this trial. Um, very importantly, though, relapse still occurred in a third of patients, and that is very similar to historical control. So if you look historically, about a third of patients will relapse after that six-month period. So the phase three BRACE trial was published this year, and this was a true randomized placebo-controlled trial taking uh, 197 patients with severe disease and randomizing to ATG cyclosporin plus or minus L-thrombopeg. The key difference here from that phase two trial is that L-thrombopeg was actually started at day 15 per trial protocol, and the reason being is that the trial protocol for this one was created before we had that sub-analysis data from the phase two showing benefit potentially by adding L-thrombopeg on day one. Primary outcome here now was three months because we saw that trend of earlier responses when we added L-thrombopeg, and that's the only real difference. So with regards to the primary outcome, a CR was achieved in 22% versus 10% of patients at that three months, so that very early time period. With regards to secondary outcomes, the two ones to focus on here that there was no difference in two-year overall survival and no difference again in those relapse rates at an 18-month follow-up period. There was a higher overall response at six months as we expected based on the phase two, 68% versus 41%, a shorter time to response of three versus almost nine months with the not L-thrombopec group. And then there's faster in, in transfusion independence. So really the bottom line from this trial and now having this phase three data is that adding a thrombopeg to the standard of care cyclosporin ATG backbone results in early hematologic response, but really at this point in time, it's too early. We don't have the follow-up data to say if it really confers any survival benefit or benefit with regards to relapse long-term. However, it is added and suggested as a standard of care now, and the reason being because this has huge implications on quality of life for patients with those transfusion burdens, and also in that initial period, uh, in theory, we have less infection risk because the patients are cytopenic, pancytopenic for as long. Dosing-wise, it's dosed at 150 milligrams once daily. There's a 50% reduction for patients of East Asian ancestry, which is an interesting uh, recommendation, and that's due to uh, reduced clearance in actually a different population than aplastic anemia, but at a genetic level. Uh, administration is very important in counseling patients taking the medication. It has to be given on an empty stomach an hour before, two hours after a meal. 
And there's a really important interaction with polyvalent cations, whereby taking with polyvalent cations reduces the absorption by up to 70%. Uh, the recommendation is to separate by two hours before and one hour after a meal, generally trying to separate by as much time as possible. So paying attention to patients, uh, talking to them about dairy products, looking at the multivitamins that, vitamins that they may be taking that may hide these polyvalent ions, and uh, as well as other supplements is really important. Treatment duration uh, is really a six-month minimum. I will say that it's also indicated in the case where counts start to decline as monotherapy to continue. Um, so in clinical practice, we really don't have the answer here yet. How long should we be continuing on thrombopad? We know the phase three trial did it for six months, but still that one third of patients relapses. So long-term studies are ongoing to try to answer some of those questions. Toxicities, it is generally very well tolerated. There's no real differences detected in clinical trials. However, uh, there's a small increase in skin reactions with rash reported in fewer than 10% of patients. And then there's uh, hepatic transaminase elevations, which is probably the most frequent thing that we see in practice. A lot of times these are transient, but there are dose reductions for elevated transaminases, as well as empiric adjustments for child P, A, B, and C. Uh, there's a package insert warning about rare thromboembolic events. This was mainly not in this population, but in the population of ITP. And I will mention that there is a theoretical concern if you go and look into this of clonal evolution, whereby if a cell within the bone marrow expresses that TPO receptor, a malignant or clonal cell, we in theory long-term could increase the risk of clonal evolution or selection for one of those malignant cells. Um, the big question here is those durability of responses with these patients relapsing uh, about the same as historical controls and also the long-term effects of using this drug. If it increases that clonal evolution or not, really time will tell as we watch these patients over time. Last thing I want to mention is supportive care. So all patients with aplasconemia, virtually all will need blood product transfusion support at some point in time. This is through red blood cell and platelet transfusions. The big risks here are L immunization, whereby a patient's relapsed to refractory after treatment. We want to take that patient to transplant down the line. Uh, however, we've given so many blood cells and that patient has experienced so many antigens that it's going to be harder down the line to find that HLA matched donor. And then iron overload is another consideration. Oftentimes this comes into play in our elderly patients who are not transplant eligible, and really we're just trying to give them the best supportive care possible. Iron overload from those red blood cell transfusions can result in end organ damage long-term. There's really limited to no evidence in the setting of aplastic anemia, uh, but sometimes iron chelation therapy may be an option to try to prevent that in somebody that we're giving transfusions to long-term. Infection prevention is the other big thing. Uh, so patients will have prolonged neutropenia and we are lymphodepleting them with immunosuppressive-based therapy. So general will start on fungal, bacterial, and PJP prophylaxis because of that lymphodepletion, as well as antiviral prophylaxis. The choice on which agent, uh, for example, in fungal prophylaxis is really going to depend on the depth of those cytopenias probably and be individualized depending on the patient uh, that you have. So that brings us to our third assessment question. This one, again, I'll give you the case here and then pull everywhere on the next slide. For our prior 28-year-old college student from Korea with newly diagnosed aplastic anemia, we make the decision to begin treatment with this new gold standard of equine ATG, cyclosporin, and thrombopeg. We start on ID prophylaxis with acyclovir, lefofloxacin, posaconazole, and sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim. 
which of the following would be the most appropriate initial dosing schedule to recommend to the team? And I'll give everybody just a few moments to go through these options uh, to help the rabbit ATG is the same dose in all of these. Remember the patient uh, is newly diagnosed of East Asian ancestry and is started on posaconazole, levofloxacin, uh, et cetera, for ID prophylaxis. All right, so it looks like most everyone has the, the correct answer, the answer I would choose here. And that's at a reduced dose of cyclosporin of one and a half mg per kg BID. Uh, the reason for that is posaconazole. So that's a pretty uh, strong drug interaction. And generally, I would empirically decrease the cyclosporin dose by somewhere between 25 and 50%, myself leaning more towards 50% in that initial period because we just gave ATG, and I know this patient's going to be lymphodepleted. Altrombopag is 50% dose reduced, and the reason being because this patient is of East Asian ancestry, uh, making B the most optimal choice or the best answer in this case. So with that, really what I want to highlight, what I want everybody to take away from this presentation is that this uh, triple backbone of immunosuppressive therapy is really the standard of care for patients presenting with severe disease. And those patients with severe disease represent the majority of the population with aplastic anemia. Uh, that backbone consists of horse ATG, cyclosporin, and L-thrombopag, and we're going to need a lot of supportive care to make sure that these patients get through and are able to make it through treatment safely and effectively. Uh, that includes our infection prophylaxis and lots of medications that would be supportive along the way. And ATG and cyclosporin, remember all those two agents in this regimen that have a lot of nuance and toxicities associated with them. So remembering that in our elderly patients, patients with poor functional status, these may be hard to tolerate. So oftentimes in that population or in the right patient, depending on the individual risk factors, we may select to do a alternative strategy that focuses less on this three drug regimen or three drug backbone and start with just cyclosporin or just L-thrombopeg. And you'll see that in clinical practice. So I just wanna mention it uh, to those of you who see this in the future. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.